Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Good morning and welcome to the program. I've got two special guests joining me this morning. Later, Grammy Award-winning drummer and producer Stuart Copeland, who first made a name for himself in the band The Police. But my first guest is on your TV screen quite often during the week. If you are a fan of our Vegas Golden Knights hockey team, to say that Ali Lozoff's story is incredible might be an understatement. The ringside reporter for the Golden Knights took a most interesting path to get here, and we've got her on Spectrum right now. Allie, welcome, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for, for asking. It's nice to be asked questions sometimes instead of always asking them. <laughs> and I'm a great admirer of yours because I know the prep work that you put into your interviews. I, I've read about it. And so I, I really am a fan of that. And it's Thank you. Uh, and I know the legend of you having a spreadsheet so that you're not repeating <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, I've, I, I've always lived by the adage, you can never be overprepared. So I uh, I just try and make sure that I put that into everything I do with work and life and everything. So Yeah, I, I agree with that. And if you have to leave a question or two on the floor, so be it, right? Oh, and believe me, a lot more than one or two gets thrown on the cutting room floor. It's uh you never, you never know, especially with intermission interviews, it happens so quickly and, and sometimes, you know, a team can score in the dying seconds and all of a sudden everything I've prepared is, is for naught and then you've got to switch gears really quickly. Sometimes you even get a player that, um, you know, got, has to tend to something else and, and denies the request. you got to switch uh, players and um, always be prepared for plan B, C, D, E, and F. <laughs> yeah, and so that can be a very last-second thing, in other words. Oh, yeah. Well, it often is, but, um, yeah. you know, with, with it depends. I mean, I do so many different um, types and styles of interviews, um, even just in this role with the, with the Golden Knights and with AT&T Sportsnet, so... You know, you obviously with game day, um, morning skate availabilities or even post game, you've got, you know, your ideas of where you'd like to go with conversations and questions you'd like to have answered. But during a game, you've got to be ready for just about anything that can come at you. And, um, I've always, I've always got a rather intense notebook or I go through a couple of them every season, but I'm, <laughs> I'm taking like furious and copious amount of notes every game and I color code everything and, I just try to keep it based on the trends of what's happening. So, yep, I've got it prepared. For those who don't know, do you have other responsibilities then at AT&T Sportsnet? Um, no. Well, during the season, I am uh, traveling with the team. I cover them. That is that is my my 100% focus. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, as you know, last year we had a very short summer, <laughs> so I came right back to yeah. it. Uh, at the end, of, was here for the for the re- start of the regular season uh, this year. So, yep, Golden Knights number one. Your career is fascinating to me because it's so well rounded. You you started out winning Miss Teen Canada. What, yeah, you was did it your at- homework, Jim. You did. Yeah. Your <laughs> there you go. I'm looking at my spreadsheet as we're speaking. <laughs> you win that at what the age of seventeen? Uh, I think so. Jeez, you're dating me, but yes, I um I won I won that um. After winning Miss Teen um, Montreal, of course, I went on to compete um, with a, a, about 50 other other young girls from across the country, and it was it was just such a great experience, I think, for me at the time because I always 
was interested in public speaking, but but it just yeah. put it on such a such another level. You know, when you're representing your country, and especially as a young woman at the time, and I was completing my studies, and my my uh, the faculty at the CEGEP where I went to school in Montreal was really understanding, and they allowed me to sort of have. Um, you know, Fridays off for the year, and I was able to tour elementary and high schools and talk about bullying and peer pressure, and it really, it, it just, it, it transformed my public speaking, brought it to a whole other level, and really um, kind of solidified that that was something I, I wanted to do and that I felt strong at and uh, that I really enjoyed. Do you still speak to the issue of, of uh, anti-bullying? Is that still something that's on your plate? You know, I, I would. I would love to. I have not yet. Um, I will. I will tell you. Last year was a whirlwind. We I was just getting uh, <laughs> moving to a new country and um, just quickly getting getting to know the area and, and fall in love with uh, with Summerlin and Las Vegas was one thing. But now that I'm here, I would love to. Absolutely. Um, I hope that in the near future I'll be invited and able to speak at schools. It's something I really um, was passionate about, and I, I really enjoy that. So. I hope to in the future, Jim, and maybe you can help me out. I, I will do that. You went on to earn degrees, and I'm not sure a lot of people knew about this, a pair of law degrees in civil and common law at the University of Montreal. I did my um, common and civil law degrees in Montreal. I went on, um, I did my master's degree there as well, but I, I wrote my bar exams um, in 2011 in Quebec and Ontario and became a lawyer sworn in. Um, you know, and, and I really had a very, very short time span of working as an attorney before I, I was swooped up by Sportsnet in Canada and started working in live TV. So I, I kind of had a, a whirlwind year of my, my own, but definitely um, grew up sort of with education as a background. You know, my family was really strong when it came to education. They believed that I needed to complete, you know, some type of, of degree, and they really felt strongly about about me pursuing my education first and foremost, and then any sort of acting and theater that I did was always a hobby, and I did that on the side, um, and I and I loved doing that as well. But uh, but certainly becoming a lawyer was was where you know my my school my schooling <laughs> lent itself. I spent ten years doing those degrees, so it wasn't for nothing. I think it really prepared <laughs> me for it prepared me for life. You know, people often ask me, you know, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing in TV? You're a lawyer. But honestly, it, it was the best background. Um, and when, when you know, young students come to me today and ask me what, you know, I don't know what I want to do, what should I study? I, I always say it's such a great background to have for, for life. It just prepares you to think in a different way. Um, a lot of successful uh, people that I meet in the broadcast industry, in fact, and in sports as well, are lawyers or have have legal degrees, have a background in law, so yeah. it's not it's not totally foreign, actually. What did your family think when you said, "Okay, I'm a lawyer now, but I'm going to go into TV"? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, well, I, I'll tell you. I'll start with my grandma. She really set the bar. Set the bar growing up. But when I was younger, she she was there at my swearing in ceremony when I became a lawyer, and we were. I maybe had like taken two family photos before she looked at me and said, "All right, so when are you going to be a judge?" <laughs> when I kind of, <laughs> you know, said, "Can I take a breather now and just, uh, you know, enjoy this moment?" But she sort of instilled that in me and just continuing to set the bar, you know, as high as high as I can. And then that way, you know, if you don't achieve what you're after, you kind of land somewhere, somewhere up there at least. And um, 
And, you know, my family, they're so supportive and have, they're, ne- they're not surprised with any outlandish, crazy things I tell them I'm going to do anymore, you know. It, it got to a point um, where they just said, you know, great, to go go for it, follow your dreams. And they weren't surprised at all when I, my, the first time I, I told them I was going to do something in, in live TV or even when I told them I was going to start doing the in-arena stuff at the Bell Center in Montreal for the Habs, they were they were so excited about it. You know, it's just such a part of our culture growing up in Montreal. So yes. um, nothing surprises them anymore. You were a ringside reporter then for the Anaheim Ducks, I believe, in 2014. Was it at that time that your mom suffered a stroke? Yes, Jim. So I, I never actually, uh, I actually never even made it to Anaheim. I um. I had I had every intention of going that season, and they were really excited to have me. But um, just around the time in October when I was set to move, um, we, my mom had this, you know, this real tragic. Um, she had a brain aneurysm that ruptured. So we were really lucky that that she lived, um, and that the incredible, you know, team of doctors that took care of her um, basically saved her life. But. It, we knew it was going to be a really long road and still a very long road ahead of us even now for her to recover. Um, but she's doing so well. And um, and like I said in a, a different interview, you know, the Ducks were such a supportive organization. They were just completely understanding of, of everything that went on. And they still keep in touch to this day and are often asking how she's doing. Anytime I'm in Anaheim, you know, the team there comes and asks how my mom is doing. And uh, she's still... She's moved on to be a Golden Knights fan, but she's still a Ducks fan, too. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you immediately think, I'm dropping everything to be with her and take care of everything? I, I didn't even use, use the word think, but I didn't even, I don't even think of that. In that kind of a situation, it's just so shocking. I mean, there was no question I I wasn't going anywhere, you know, and, and um, you only you only have one mom, and she's my hero, so there wasn't really, and, and for my husband, too, at the time, you know, we were both really excited about that opportunity, but there was no way, given the circumstances and the and sort of the prognosis that was really grim at the time, we weren't we were not in any way going to be leaving. So, um, you know, I had hoped that as the months went on, that I would still be able to return, and and the Ducks also were really hopeful, but it just um, it didn't work out that way, and it took a lot longer for her to get well. Um, so I I wanted to be home and with with my family, you know still to this day families first and um, I'm sure you would agree many people live that way too and that's, that's certainly the case for us. Ali Lozoff from the Vegas Golden Knights joins me and I know that you are the case of somebody where one thing leads to another that's for sure and as your mom's condition improved I think it was at that point that you found out through your agent that the Vegas Golden Knights were interested in you. Oh yeah and you know you say one thing leads to another I really it, it's just Sometimes when I talk about it, and like like you're asking me these questions now, when I say it, say it out loud and kind of talk about all the twists and turns my life's taken, it's just in my mind there's no way you can't live thinking that everything happens for a reason because even in that real you know tragic moment and the, that that span of about a year and a half where I really w- wasn't planning anything, you know, I I, I stopped making plans because I saw how quickly life could change in really like an instant. I went from being able to tell someone what I was going to do for the next, you know, two years of my life to not wanting to commit to something, you know, two weeks away. So 
Um, but like you said, I, I, my mom started to get better and I started to, you know, suggest maybe that I would go back and do what I loved. And I really felt like it was something that I was meant to do and, and that I felt the most myself when doing it. I always thought that it was a unique kind of talent that I had being able to speak in public the way I, I have and carry myself on television and, and in different mediums and broadcasts. And so, um, my agent was supportive throughout the whole ordeal and always knew that um, I wanted to get back out there. So uh, to have me back and, and through them uh, wanting to hire me, the, the Golden Knights also um, knew that I was available and one thing led to another and I was uh, stealing a deal to come to Vegas. I got married and moved to Vegas all within the span of, of a month. So it was a really big year last year. <laughs> Yeah, I see what you mean about it's hard to believe unless you wrote everything down, <laughs> what the series of events. You know, I heard you did something just tremendous for your mom, and that was you took her to a morning skate in Montreal and arranged for all of the Knights players to come over and meet her. Oh, you know, Jim, I I don't even, you, you can't even imagine what it meant to our family, but I, I didn't even need to arrange the moment that they saw her every one of them wanted to come and say hello. You know, it was just so special, and it just it just really shows you what kind of, of players and human beings are on this team and why I love being part of this organization and this franchise so much. It's just they're so down-to-earth, and they're so kind, and they're so generous with their time. You know, not, not just come over and say hello, but actually speak with her and engage in conversation, and she was just over the moon and, and had been following them, obviously, since I since I joined the team last year, so she lived through that whole inaugural season, and and really it, it uplifted her in, in lots of you know down moments that I'm sure people can relate to having when they're trying yeah, to recover yeah. from a stroke or from an injury. You know, it, it really uplifted her, and so that all culminating in Montreal and me being able to bring her and show her what I do, it was it was just incredible. And is it true that your mom likes to pass along advice to Marcia So and Riley Smith? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, she loves it. And you know, a couple times last season, I I would jokingly share it with with them and with with Jonathan Marsha so in particular because he's her favorite and he's you know um, a French speaker from Quebec. And I would right, tell right. him, you know, my mom says you've got to score the first goal today, and you know he would just laugh. <laughs> and and uh, so him meeting her in particular was really a special moment. She was. Uh, she was excited for all of them that it went up a notch when he came out, you know. By the way, Allie, I know what it is to try to uh, drop a little bit of an accent because I'm from Wisconsin, which is like Canada South. Okay. Uh, and and uh, so you must have worked a little bit on that being, you know, getting into some acting and some other things in broadcasting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a unique part about growing up in, in Montreal and just you know, your life is bilingual. I, I, I mean, kindergarten to grade three, it's French immersion, and then gradually you start learning a bit of, you add a bit of English to the curriculum, but really it's unique there, and I, I, my whole life I've, you know, spoken both languages. I went to law school in French at Université de Montréal. It, it really just was part of life. I never really thought about it much, but I'll tell you one thing, and that's joining this team last year could not have been a better fit because, as you well know, there were so many French-speaking players. In, in fact, it was at the time I joined them in New York on their first road trip and Max Lagasse was up. You know, there were so many French-speaking players there that I felt right at home, you know, the first morning skate, and um, and they were all really happy to speak French. And we still will speak French on occasion because it just gives you that feeling of home. So 
that was really unique and, and uh, helped me a lot. During the interview process, has a Knights player ever said something to you that just totally surprised you? Um, yeah, every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, all the time. I mean, I think it's fun to keep each other on our toes because it is different when you cover a team day in and day out, right? Because you're you're so you know you're having daily conversations with every one of these players. So definitely, for sure, that you know you try to keep each other on your toes and. Uh, and there are there are definitely characters in the room that'll surprise me. Nate Schmidt stands out. You know, I never know what to expect. <laughs> and um, and then and there are times too. You know, right before going live, especially when you know when they're when they're winning as they have been, and the mood is so so fantastic. And yeah, there's been they'll they'll slide a French comment and throw me off the guard, and and it just sets the tone, and it makes it a lot of fun to do what I do. I'll tell you that. Much. <laughs> I know your master's thesis was on. On violence in the NHL. What would you have written about Ryan Reeves' recent center ice fight during the Rangers game? Oh boy! I'll have, uh, have to put up a link for people to read that. Although I don't know if I should because it'll really date me when it you know, <laughs> way back. But um, you know, um, it, it was a definite part of the thesis. Actually, just the culture um, and how you know at the time, and we're talking, geez, now probably close to uh, eight years ago that I was working on this. Um, that I even at that time, there was no way I could foresee that fighting would be completely eliminated from the sport just with all the research that I had done and and I you know I was writing this thesis at the time when Max Pacioretty had just suffered a massive hit from Zidane Chera at the Bell Center that severed one of his vertebrae and it was um, you know part of my research was you know on that and on fighting and on the culture generally speaking so you know I don't I think that there's a lot a significant amount less fighting now than when I would have worked on this thesis, but um, do I see it being completely eliminated of the sport? It's hard to say that, that I do. Yeah, interesting. You know, and I've been here through the minor league teams being here, the Thunder and the uh, Las Vegas Wranglers, and it was enough of a circus in the minor leagues, as you know, where they would even encourage the two goalies to come out and go at it. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, that the, the players, it's a, it's a tacit agreement to a certain level of, of, uh, of violence that they're they're accepting when they drop the gloves and when they're ready to, to, to fight like that. So, Well, Allie, I know that you've spent more time than than I really was allowed to have with you, and I do appreciate <laughs> it. It was fantastic. It was it was nice meeting you, if even over the phone. Hey, it's great to meet you, too, and I'm glad to have you uh, throw you into my game day routine here. It was really nice. Allie Lozoff, Vegas Golden Knights reporter. I appreciate it, and congratulations on a job well done. Thanks, Jim. My next guest is the legendary Grammy-winning drummer of the police. He has since become a producer, a filmmaker, and there is talk, maybe, of a new police album in the future. Stuart, welcome to the program. And looking back to the beginning of the band, when you were getting your band together, you already had the name The Police, I believe, in place, and you wanted, it to, you wanted it to be a punk band. I had a manifesto. Funny, I've still got it. <laughs> Whenever I need cheering up, I read my 1976 manifesto. <laughs> we don't care about success or fame. <laughs> you find guys, great guys like Sting and Andy Summers, which leads me to believe that you guys were maybe a little more sophisticated than musically than most of the punk bands of the day. Oh, absolutely. We were three or four years older. We're actual professional musicians, whereas a lot of the punk bands, you know, Sex Pistols, uh, The Clash, The Damned, they had picked up their instruments 20 minutes before. Um, and achieved amazing results 
because they have the gift. They, you know, they're, they're, a lot of kids picked up guitars suddenly and are forgotten. But when Joe Strummer picked up a guitar, he was born to play that guitar. And um, so, but we had been around the block a couple times, so we were sort of like sharks among minnows. But the critics uh, wrote us off right away as being charlatans and carpetbaggers, which we were. Uh, we were, you know, I was, uh, you know, I'm now proud. I've come out of the closet. Um, as a prog rock musician. Right. I had long hair, I had boots up to my knees, I played in curved air, and I'm loud and proud. Uh, prog rock. But in the, the critics in the punk era, the rules of punk were very, very strict. Um, obviously the hairdo, critical, but too much musicianship was frowned upon, and we didn't realize in the police how good each other were until we got out of England and played sessions with other people, where other people would say to Sting and I, the rhythm said, go for it, let's hear what she can do, just take it off, and we'd take it <laughs> off, and Andy would, you know, and we'd look at each other, wow, you can do that. Yeah. So how do you reconcile all that musicianship? I mean, when it gets to the point where you know we've got to get these songs down to two minutes, how did you do that? Not to say that you were dumbing it down, but how did you kind of fit into that box then? It's sort of like cutting to the chase. We had all done enough sessions so that we knew um, what, what's needed and what's extraneous, what's just, what's, what's, uh highlights the song and sells the song and what's just showing off. But there was something else which was that we toured across America as starvelings playing two or three sets a night uh, and had to stretch our material out to the max, which required that we jam and improvise and just make stuff up. And that's also, when we got to America, where in America, um, God bless America, did not know the punk rules, and so we could break them. And nobody knew that we're not supposed to play guitar solos, and nobody knew that songs should be under three minutes. So <laughs> that's sort of where we found ourselves, is in the, the, night, you know, the, the, the clubs across America, just stretching the material out and discovering each other. So when we went back into the studio, we were armed, uh, and, and I, I think our records got better and better. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I loved your film, So What?, which was all about uh, the punk the punk. Now that is obscure. All about the punk culture. I know how much of a fan you were of all those bands, so were you friends with the guys in the Sex Pistols and the Clash? Yeah, yeah. Jonesy, uh, the guitarist of the, of the Sex Pistols, has a radio show here in L.A. Yeah. And he's a good old boy. He's been around the block, and we yuck it up. Because our, our guy, and the same with the Clash and the Damned and, and others, we laugh about how, um, you know, Sex Pistols invented punk. And then the big boys on, on the school playoff, that's Sting, Andy, and me, we, they, they, they got their little piece of candy. Oh, we'll take that. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we took their candy all the way to the bank, so to speak, you know, yeah. about it now. Because we were Charlesons. We were indeed carpetbaggers. Uh, we were in there we're flying a flag of convenience, uh, which we soon shredded when it wasn't convenient anymore. Well, if I'm not mistaken, the first score you wrote was for the film Rumblefish. Yes. How did that come? This is Coppola. Yeah, how did that come to you? Uh, well, he woke up one morning and said, let's get that drummer guy in the police, see if he can do a score. And what he did was, while they were rehearsing the film in Tucson, Arizona, um, they, he brought in a bunch of musicians. He brought in a really straight uh, um, film composer guy from New York. He brought in a Jimi Hendrix sound-alike guy, and he brought it, and me and a couple others as well. And I guess 
Um, one thing you learn as a drummer is how to get onto the drum stool because there's only one. And those techniques of getting rid of other drummers came in very handy when it came to nuking those other uh, musicians who showed up in Tucson. So eventually there was only one guy standing, and that was me. Wow. <laughs> so having nuked all the competition, <laughs> I got the job. By the way, before I let you go, it seems like you and other drummers like Mick Fleetwood and maybe even Ginger Baker have gone to Africa to find different sounds. How important was that for you? Uh, very important. Um, it was mostly, it wasn't important for me to discover or find what I was looking for, but it, once I went there and had that experience, wow, what an impression. Then what I was looking for was, specifically, the roots of American music, the backbeat, four on the floor, 4-4 uh, rhythm, uh, the uh, flat and seven, which gives us, you know, the blue note, um, that mode that, makes, that, that says blues. And I thought I'd find it in Africa, and I found the flat and seventh in a few places that could almost sound like the blues, but not really. I did not find the backbeat. I did not find four on the floor. I didn't find anything recognizably American except uh, one night in jail in Kinshasa, the radio, I could hear an African band playing on American guitars, on American uh. drum set. Uh, the music had come back from America to Africa. And it made me realize that, um, you know, the most distinctive feature of American culture is our music. And we all know where that came. It came from New Orleans. It came from the uh, from from black culture invented in America, right? You know, with with African roots, but it all was created here. And I've just been making a documentary about this. I've been down on Congo Square in New Orleans, uh, where the story of how uh, these the Confederate Army band instruments ended up in the pawn shops of New Orleans in the hands of the, the Africans who would have uh, one day, the slaves would have one day off a week because Louisiana was a Catholic state. And so there was a one place in America where they were able to express their culture. And these instruments were available. And so that's how they came into the hands of fundamentally Africa, you know, trumpets, trombones, snare drums. That's where American music, which I consider to be the most important facet of American identity and culture, there's nothing more American than American music, and it came from Congo Square in New Orleans. I feel like I've just been schooled by Professor Copeland. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> got this all from Luther down. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And about 300 yards from, you know, it was actually uh, the, the French Quarter of New Orleans had a wall around it. Rampart Street was that wall. Outside the city is where this would all happen. And it's all, you know, it was all around. But the Congo Square is kind of the place which has been designated to represent all the places. And about 300 yards away from that, it was a building that is now a laundromat, which is where Fats Domino recorded the first oh, rock man. record. Little Richard recorded Lucille there. It, it's amazing. Stuart, I know that you've got to run. It's been an honor. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for listening. I get the feeling that Stuart Copeland is only happy if he is extremely busy, which he always seems to be. By the way, there is speculation that the police have been working on a new album with Stuart Sting and Andy Summers already having laid down at least eight songs. But representatives are being very tight-lipped at the moment. Thanks again to Stuart Copeland and my first guest, Vegas Golden Knights reporter Ali Lozoff. And thank you for stopping by this morning. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.